So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear now uh, the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also are descended from Abraham." But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would illumine uh, our sin-darkened hearts and minds with the light of the word of your Son, that you would shine his truth upon our hearts, that you would uh, remove all of the shadows of darkness, of ignorance, of sin, of rebellion, and of hard-heartedness. We pray, O Lord, that in doing so, that you would bless us, that you would draw us into the light of your Son by the power of your Spirit, that you would speak words of life unto us, that you would bring forth life and sanctity and holiness, that you would grant unto us the desire to worship and praise you, that we would be filled with worship and praise for you, our triune God, who so rightly deserves all of our worship. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. History is littered with scores of mysterious people that seemingly appear out of nowhere and then vanish into the mists of time. On November 24th, 1971, for example, a man by the name of Dan Cooper, otherwise known as D.B. Cooper, hijacked an airliner, forced it to the ground, was able to get a $200,000 ransom paid to him while he was on the ground, which in nowadays dollars would be some $1 million, and uh, then forced the plane back up into the air, and as history has it, he parachuted out of that plane and disappeared, and no one has seen him since. In the 17th century, in France, there was a prisoner known only as prisoner number 64389000, and this particular prisoner wore an iron mask. Nobody could see who he was. And what happened is that it was assumed that he was some sort of political prisoner. He was forbidden to show his face, and he spent some two to three decades in prison wearing this mask. 
1703, he died in the Bastille, and his identity remains as a mystery to this day. Nobody knows who he was. Well, the Bible has some of its own mysterious figures, and we could say that chief among them is Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the high priest of God. When Abraham returned from battle after engaging the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and several other cities, he came out to meet and bless the patriarch upon his victory. And he appears in the book of Genesis chapter 14, and then for the most part completely disappears from the scriptures. He's only mentioned in Psalm 110, and then here in the book of Hebrews several times. And so while there's much mystery surrounding his identity, who Melchizedek is, the author of Hebrews explains a lot about both the nature of his kingly office as well as the nature of his priestly role and how he points to Jesus Christ, the greater high priest, and in fact we can say the great priest of our confession. And so what we do is we have to remember that the author of the book of Hebrews, his principal aim in writing this letter is to convince Jewish Christians who would embrace Christ, embrace the gospel under the threat of persecution and suffering, not to return back to the old ways of the Old Testament. And so to this end, the author of the book of Hebrews has consistently demonstrated Christ's superiority to the angels. For which uh, to the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? He shows how Jesus is superior to the law. He shows how Jesus is superior to Moses. Uh, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus Christ is a faithful servant over God's house. He shows how Jesus is superior to Joshua, the one who brought Israel into the promised land, and yet Jesus is one who brings us in through the gates of the new Jerusalem itself. And so now, in this vein, what the author does is he shows us how Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And he does this in his effort to convince his fellow Jewish Christians not to go back. And so what we want to do is we want to see first what he has to say about Melchizedek, this mysterious figure that all of a sudden appears in the Genesis narrative and then for the most part vanishes into the sands of the hourglass. And then secondly, we want to see what the author has to say about Jesus and how he compares Jesus to Melchizedek to make the point, Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Do not Go back, for there is no other saving hope but for Jesus Christ. So let's first give thought to what he has to say about Melchizedek and ask this pressing question, who is Melchizedek? Now, the original Genesis 14 narrative doesn't provide us with much information other than telling us in chapter 14, at verse, at verse 18 of Genesis, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Now, as I said, he he met Abraham as Abraham was returning from battle against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he brought him a royal meal of bread and wine. 
And Abraham, in turn, tithed or gave him 10% of all of the treasure that he had captured in battle. He tithed his treasure to Melchizedek. You don't give a tithe to somebody who is beneath you. And this is especially the case in the ancient Near Eastern world. You give a tithe to one who is greater than you. And in this case, Abraham tithes a tenth of the treasure that he seized in battle to this great king, to King Melchizedek. After this, Melchizedek just vanishes. He disappears and we never really hear from him again. Now, recall what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 5, verse 11, that he had much to say about Melchizedek. But in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, but you are dull of hearing. You're not ready for it. And so he rebuked his audience. He rebuked the congregation because they weren't ready for these things. But now on the heels of his rebuke, he turns back onto the main road to talk about this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. And he first begins to explain the meaning of his name. He says in chapter 7, verse 2, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, the name Melchizedek is the combination of two Hebrew words, the word for king and the word for righteousness. Many, many Hebrew names bear this characteristic. My own name is essentially a Hebrew name, John. Yahweh, Yo, or Yahweh, you would get uh, Jehovah, Yo, Natan, the Hebrew word for give, Yo, Natan, or shortened for John, God gives. God gives a gracious gift. There are many names like this in the Hebrew Bible. Now, above all else, what the author is saying about Melchizedek is he is a man marked by righteousness, so much so that he was appointed as a king by God. He's a king of righteousness. Now, we have to remember, in addition to this, as I said, that names reveal a lot about a person in the Old Testament. There are many days when my family could say, I don't live up to my name. I am not a gift of God to them. Uh, I'm earning my jerk marriage merit badge sometimes, right? But this is the case in so many Old Testament saints. Jacob means supplanter or deceiver. We know he was certainly that as he tried to deceive his way into the blessings of the covenant. We know that Abraham means father of many nations, God's name, Yahweh, means I am, the God who was, who is, and who is to come. And so what Melchizedek, therefore, means is that chiefly, above all else, he was a man who was in conformity to the law of God. If you wanted to see, at least in the Old Testament, a dictionary definition of what somebody looked like who was obedient to God, it would be Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, But at the same time, we also see that the author designates him or explains that he was the king of Salem, or in Hebrew, Shalom, the king of peace. And Shalom, or Salem, refers to the place that eventually would become and bear the name Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He was the king over the capital of Israel, or at least the eventual capital. So here the author, by explaining the nature of Melchizedek's name, both the fact that he is the king of righteousness as well as the king of peace or the king of the future capital city of the promised land, it gives us some more details to know a little bit more as about who Melchizedek was. But then the author also goes and delves into Melchizedek's interaction with Abraham so that he can begin to paint the picture as to why he is inferior to Christ. Now, what we have to realize as the author sets this up is that Abraham is much like George Washington for the Jewish people. You know, the degree to which we extol George Washington, we've put him on monuments. He's known as a founding father. If you were to ask people, at least hopefully that have a good education, you would say, name some of the founding fathers, and they would probably mention Washington, Jefferson, Adams, and others. And so in this way, what he is saying by going to this interaction that Melchizedek has with Abraham is he's heralding the Jewish George Washington, if we can put it this way. One of the foundational pillars of the Jewish people. And so this means that Abraham has great significance for Israel's history. And so this is the first step in the author's argument by showing that the Jewish George Washington, Abraham, founding pillar of the Israelite people, gave a tithe of his seized treasure to Melchizedek. In other words, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. You know, think about that just for a moment. You know, if, if I were to walk up to you and say, you have to give the person uh, sitting in front of you a tenth of your possessions, <laughs> you, you, you might immediately begin to ask questions. Why? Well, add, add the factor that here Abraham goes and he's able to capture this treasure in battle. In other words, In many ways, he has essentially had to work very hard for this. And yet, all of a sudden, he just gives a tenth of it over to this stranger that he's never met. Well, the only reason that he's going to do this is if this stranger is of a status and a significance of far greater than Abraham himself. So this is the first step in the argument. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And now the second step in his argument here is to show that Melchizedek is greater than all the Levitical priests, the entire Levitical line, and that he contrasts the Levitical priests in the priestly office that they carried out with Melchizedek's priesthood. 
He says in verse 3, speaking of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, some have read this statement saying, wow, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, without beginning or ending of days, without father or mother, without genealogy. But that's not the point. The author is saying that he is without genealogy, unlike the Levites. And he says that in this sense, Melchizedek resembles Jesus. It would be an odd statement to say that if Melchizedek was actually Jesus, if he said Jesus resembles Jesus, so it doesn't fit. The point is, is that he's showing that Melchizedek's priestly office without genealogy is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which required a genealogy. In other words, he's saying that Melchizedek is a priest by the direct appointment of God. The direct appointment of God. When I was in seminary, I, could, I remembered that one of my professors was a presidential appointee. And what that meant is that unlike the other faculty at the seminary who had to go through a process of being approved by the board of trustees and the faculty, the president was allowed to make two or three direct presidential appointments where he could add anybody he wanted to by virtue of his authority and office as the president. They were presidential appointees, direct appointees. This is what Melchizedek was, a direct appointee. God himself appointed Melchizedek. Along these lines, I can remember once being at a meeting of seminary or a presbytery And somebody made an argument saying that, well, perhaps we could have an, you know, uh, an an unordained man, uh, you know, administer the Lord's Supper because even Paul himself was not ordained uh, by by his, his fellow brothers. And one man stood up in the presbytery, was very exercised, got very angry and started yelling. And as a new member of Presbytery, I just kind of sunk down into the pew and I thought, oh, I am so glad. Thank you, Lord, that it's not me who's getting this tongue lashing. But he said very red-faced, what do you mean the Apostle Paul wasn't ordained? He was ordained by Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus. And it was true. Paul was called directly by Jesus. Directly by Jesus. This is the nature of Melchizedek's appointment. He was appointed directly by God. And so this is why he says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. You see, the Levites, on the other hand, in order to be a Levitical priest, you had to prove, I'm of the line of Levi. In the days of Nehemiah, when they were reconstituting worship as they returned to the land and they were rebuilding the temple, the Levites, if they wanted to serve as priests, had to prove that they were the descendants of Levi. 
And so, in other words, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because it's not established on the basis of genealogical descent, but upon God's direct appointment. Verses 5 and 6, And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, that is Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So he says, look, he says the people had to tithe to the Levites, even though they were brothers, and yet here is Melchizedek who receives tithes from Abraham. He's directly appointed by God. Now, to further prove that Melchizedek's superiority to the Levitical priests, he points out that even Levi himself, in a sense, gave tithes to Melchizedek. Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, that is the tithes from the fellow Israelites, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. He says, if you really want to push things, Abraham is the father of Levi. Abraham is greater than Levi. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. This means that in some sense, Levi, because he was still in his father's loins, gave tithes to Melchizedek as well. He says this further proves that Levi is inferior to Melchizedek. So if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, if Melchizedek is greater than the Levites, then who is greater than Melchizedek? Well, this question has the answer of Jesus, which brings us to our second point. Notice we want to say here that Melchizedek, the author says in verse 3, resembles the Son of God. In other words, Melchizedek is a shadow. He's a rough sketch. He's an anticipation of Jesus, our great high priest. Through Melchizedek, God says, my son is going to look something like this, but he's going to be even greater. You know, the fact that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and peace should signal to us these are words that we should be familiar, that should clue us in that, hey, this guy sounds a lot like Jesus. What does the psalmist say about the Messiah's reign? Psalm 72, verse 7, in the Messiah's days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound. The prophet Isaiah famously takes these attributes and reveals that they are going to mark the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 32, 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Isaiah 32, 17, and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Melchizedek is but a shadow. 
Melchizedek may have been directly appointed as a priest by God. He may have been so righteous that God made him the king of righteousness. But no matter what, Melchizedek was a sinful human being, which means that he too was a sinner. He fell short of the glory of God. He himself was in need of a savior. We can say this, for example, about David. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet we know that David was a sinner. Well, this is true of Melchizedek. But in every way in which Melchizedek points forward to Christ through the similarities, we find them uh, in far greater quantitative and qualitative manners in Jesus because Melchizedek is the shadow, Jesus is the substance, he is the reality, the one to whom Melchizedek points. So all of these facts point to the fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the King of Righteousness, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and the great High Priest of our confession. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, and if he's greater... You could almost hear the author essentially saying, why would you want to go back? Why would you turn your back on Jesus Christ, our great high priest, one greater than Melchizedek? Why would you want to go back to the Levitical priests who are inferior to Jesus? Because Jesus is directly appointed by God the Father to his priestly role. If the Levites are inferior to Abraham because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, but Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, why would you want to go back to the Old Testament? Think of the different ways in which Jesus' high priestly work is superior to the Levitical priests. You know, the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And this was after significant, significant personal cleansing, a sacrificial bull and prayer and preparation to ensure that the high priest would not foul the sacrifices and would not bring sin into the very presence of God, thereby uh, essentially ruining the opportunity for God's people to have an intercessor appear in the presence of God. And yet, what does Jesus, the righteous one, do for us? We see this most powerfully, I think, in the 17th chapter of John, where we see Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he says in John 17, 9, he prays for the church. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The high priest would only go in once a year. Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies, and he prays, for us even now. And notice here, Jesus says, I do not pray for the world, but he prays for the church. You know, in, in our you know, Western democratic culture, one that is striving for equality in all kinds of different ways over the past several centuries... That, I suspect, would strike most people as being unfair. That why wouldn't God, through Christ, intercede for everybody? It's because he loves his church. He loves his bride. He only intercedes for her. He only intercedes for you. 
John chapter 17, verse 15 and 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Christ in his high priestly office as our great uh, you know, high priest intercedes for us, not only that he prays for us, that, but he prays for our protection. He prays for our protection. You know, one of the things that I regularly do for my children uh, on a daily basis, and I usually get up and one of the first things I do in the morning is I pray for my kids. I pray that God would not only save them, but that God would protect them, that he would never let them wander from him. And then, of course, I pray for their physical well-being and health, especially these days with all of the virus mess that's all around us. But what gives us hope is the fact that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, does the same for each and every one of us, not just in the mornings, but perpetually as he intercedes for us in the holy of holies in the presence of God. And this is what I find so powerful in Jesus' high priestly prayer when he says in John 17, verses 20 and following, I do not ask only for these, in other words, these who are around me right now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. For us, for you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for our faith. He prays for our unity at this very moment. Where are the Levitical high priests? They're dead. They've died. It requires a continual genealogical descent, but not so for Jesus. See, the great temptation for the author's recipients, for the Jewish Christians that received this letter, would be that they would abandon Christ and return to the Levitical system. And quite obviously, the author makes a powerful case as to why this would be foolish. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the law. He's greater than Moses, Joshua, Abraham, the Levites, and even Melchizedek himself. And so it would be utter folly to flee from the light of Christ and return to the shadows of the Old Testament. You know, imagine if you were on a great journey. And in fact, I can actually, you know, make this a bit more realistic in that I've told you this before, that when I went one time for a four-day trip to Europe uh, for some theological meetings for a conference, that four-day trip turned into two weeks because a volcano erupted. You know, and I was stuck, and I couldn't fly out. They closed the airspace. It was crazy. But I had on my phone some pictures of my wife. And I would just look at those pictures from time to time. And my wife would also send me pictures of then my young son and my newly born son. My wife was not too happy. She said, you know, I, I, my son was like about a week old. <laughs> and then I was like gone for two weeks. <laughs> there were many tears shed over the phone on that one. But imagine as I'm looking at those pictures, and then I finally make it home. And then I would tell my wife as she greeted me at the airport, not now, not now, I'm looking at the pictures. 
Well, don't you want to hold your son? No, 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 I I got the pictures right here. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Right here. It's all right here. But your son, no, 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 right here. It's all right. No, don't, don't bother me. I'm in, the mo- I'm in the moment. In the moment. You would think, that. Well, what, are you crazy? He, you know, you've been waiting for two weeks desperately to return to your wife and to your two sons. And, and now they're here in the flesh and you would rather go back to the pictures on the phone? You get the idea. This is what the author's saying. Don't go back to the shadows. Don't go back to the Levites, to the law, to the angels. Here is Jesus. Turn to him. Turn to him. It's utter folly to flee from the light of Christ and to return to the shadows of the Old Testament. Now, we might think that as this particular message is perhaps lost on us because I suspect that none of us have any temptation to go back to the Old Testament. And yet we should ask ourselves, while we may not be tempted to go back to the Old Testament, how often are we tempted in in, in our Christian walk to turn to substitutes for Christ in the face of difficulties, in the face of trials, tribulations? So often it's the case that people in the history of the church, for example, have turned to the superiority of human, of human reason to say that, no, I can't accept the authority of Christ's word because it doesn't square with what I understand in my mind. I have to make my mind the supreme power in my life, not the word of God. John Chrysostom, an ancient church father in the early church, he says, poor human reason, when it trusts itself, substitutes the strangest absurdities for the highest divine concepts. You know, how how much do we see human beings engaging in utter foolishness? Because they want to retreat from the authority of Christ's word and they want to go into their own foolish thinking. How many people turn to the poor money of substitute, or the substitute of mammon and money? It's an inebriating substitute for Christ and gives us the impression of great power, but it ultimately fails to accomplish anything that's lasting. Even Jesus himself tells us that we can't serve God and mammon, for we will either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. How many of us are tempted to turn to our own obedience? You know, one of the things that I observed in the pastoral ministry is that so often people will make certain aspects of their obedience idols. And they will say, well, you know what? I really do exceptionally well at this particular command of God. I'm just nearly perfect at obeying the fourth commandment. I always want to say there's nine more. How well are we doing at all of those? And remember, the law of God is not just something that we have to obey one, but rather all ten. To break one is to break the whole. There are a host of meager substitutes that we often try to bring to the throne of God when the author calls us 
to surrender to Jesus Christ, the great high priest of our confession. Now, there were two motivating factors for the author's recipients wanting to return to the Old Testament ways. Persecution from their fellow Jews, as well as, I suspect, comfort and familiarity. They wanted to return to what they knew rather than to be uncomfortable with what they did not know. And yet, so often, we don't realize that our discomfort in the Christian life is the razor's edge of sanctification. It's when God makes us uncomfortable that that is when he is shaping and forming and molding us to be most like Christ. And if we flee from that discomfort, seeking out the comfort of what we know, oftentimes the sinful habits that we know, we're fleeing from the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. So we must pray that God would take away the temptations to to, to bring forward sinful substitutes for Christ. We have to pray that no matter what discomfort we might find, whether it's in the face of illness, whether it's in the face of, uh, you know, people having done something against us, whether it's in the face of a lack of faith, that we would not flee from Christ, but rather flee to him. We have to pray that God would preserve us by Christ in his grace and convince our wandering hearts that there is no one greater than Christ in this world, let alone in the cosmos. In the words of Augustus Toplady's hymn, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross. I cling naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. But at the same time, we must also pray for courage. Courage to face the world's persecution. Courage to face our own temptations and doubt. If we remember that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that we serve him, all other authorities pale in comparison. There is no one else that can save us but him. So pray for faithfulness. Whether it's in the face of challenges or especially in the face of discomfort when we find ourselves on unfamiliar terrain. Pray that we would uh, not only fear the Lord with that respect, respectful type of fear, not a servile fear, but one of respect and humility, that he would grant unto us faith to follow our Savior no matter where he leads and no matter where he goes. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have saved us through Christ, one greater than Melchizedek, one greater than the Levites, and that his priestly office is an eternal office appointed by you directly, and that he has a priesthood that never ends. And so thus he intercedes for us in your very presence, even at this very moment as we pray, as the Spirit carries our prayers into your presence and Christ brings them before your throne. We rejoice, O Lord, in the work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, And we pray that we would seek no other shelter save but his work. Lord, there are so many temptations in this life, so many opportunities for false gods, so many opportunities to think that somehow we can please you apart from the grace of Christ. Forgive us, O Lord, for our faithlessness. Take away all of the idols in our hearts. Remove every temptation. 
We pray, O Lord, that in the face of the discomfort of trials and of bearing our crosses, that you would not allow us, O Lord, or give us the desire to flee from that discomfort, but rather that we would doggedly pursue it, knowing that that discomfort is the cutting edge of our sanctification, where you are molding, shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that in this way we would become comfortable in our discomfort, not because we are somehow masochistic, masochistic, O Lord, but rather because we take comfort in your grace. And that with Paul, when he prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be removed, that nevertheless he said, but he praised, he praised you for the sufficiency of your grace. We pray that in the face of these things, O Lord, that you would grant unto us the same spirit, spirit of the Apostle Paul, but even yet more greatly, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.